So 74,000 a year. 63,568. Yeah, 34.94 an hour for my W2 position, $55 an hour for my acute PRN position. Now I make $37 an hour. Um, that's after several raises. I am making $49 an hour for the 1099. Hello, I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we're two SLPs on a mission to arm our colleagues with the knowledge they need to increase their pay and help elevate our field as a whole. Wage stagnation continues to be one of the major issues plaguing the field of SLP, and we are here to bring transparency around this issue. Each episode, we interview SLPs and ask direct questions about money so that all of us can use that information to better negotiate our salaries. If you're curious about what other SLPs make and want to know what you can do to make sure you don't get caught in the trap of never being paid what you're worth, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to Other SLPs Pockets. We're super excited to be back. We took a little bit of a break because at the end of July, I was sitting at a stoplight and somebody behind me was on their phone and like didn't even process that they needed to stop and totally ran into the back of my car and pushed me into the car in front of me. So I've been dealing with a concussion for the last few weeks, which has been eye-opening to help me understand what my patients are going through with brain injuries and just a really frustrating process of recovery, but I'm starting to feel a lot better and feeling like I can actually focus and hold a conversation and do more than one thing at once. So we're back in action and we are here to, as promised, as promised, talk about the difference between 1099 and W-2 contracts, which is a very layered issue. It's not something that's black and white. It's not something that we can just like give you a list and be like, this is what you should think. Like we're all, we're encouraging everybody out there to critically examine and think for yourself and know that you are ultimately the SLP who gets to decide in collaboration with your employer, what your classification is. And we're just here to encourage you to think critically, to consider all of the facts and information and to make an informed decision. So it's, um, well, it's a good time to be having this conversation because there was kind of a blow up on social media recently about a particular job ad that we're not going to talk about the specific details of who it was or what facility or anything like that, but it does paint a picture of the kinds of conversations that are being had. And so, Jeanette, can you give us like the snapshot view of what happened and tell us a little bit about this job ad that went viral. Sure. And you just volleyed that to me. But in case you missed it, that was Megan who was talking. If you haven't memorized our voices or or even cared to tell us apart, that <laughs> Megan um, sustained the concussion. So this is Jeanette. And um, a little while back, there was a posting in a social media group. Um, it was a an SLP that posted a position for a CF. And the position is classified as PRN, but this particular PRN job has a fixed schedule, Thursday through Sunday, 32 hours a week. It was not transparent in rate. 
It just said rate is highly competitive for PRN in that particular market. So 32 hours a week should equate to a very strong full-time salary. And it said, um, I'm reading this right from the post, seeking a CF candidate with desire to work in acute care, primary stroke center, and level one trauma center must have a very solid foundational dysphagia knowledge. And then this person who was posting said, I will personally provide mentorship, supervision for video fluoroscopy fees, ICU, trauma, and trach invent competency. And then please send your resume to me and apply at the link below. And my understanding is this was not like, um, you know, a random SLP. This is an influencer. So somebody who has a lot of social media sway. Yes, this is a an SLP who has um, been on podcast as far back as I know since COVID. So um, is in the public eye within our community. And um, this posting was not received well in, in this group where um, I was viewing it. Uh, there, there were issues surrounding the transparency of pay, um, potentially using the, the celebrity, if you will, status of this person that, oh, you're basically giving your nights and weekends away for nine months to be supervised by this person, but without any of the benefits of working a 32 hour a week job. And I think um, that appears going through the 128 comments that this post received, um, people really have a problem with that, that a 32 hour a week position should have the option of benefits and paid time off. Um, and, and everything that comes with that, if that person would choose to want that. Um, so, you know, people were using the word predatory. I don't know. What do you think, Megan? Yeah. So we were talking about this as it was happening. And I initially was like, I don't really see the issue here because they're being clear and upfront about the expectations. But the, the question that I had right away was, what is the rate? And the rate was not immediately available, right? Even though this was in a state that's required to post. Yes. So, yes. So someone, a a very good PI SLP um, began communicating with this this person. And and I'm pulling up the comment now. And um, the person, the the influencer said, um, this... This is all we have staffing and funding for. We do not have the need or funding to to support the addition of another full-time benefited employee. Certainly some jobs have better benefits than others. Those who are not interested or for whom it would not be a good fit need not apply. And my comment was, how can this person know if it's a good fit if they want to apply when you haven't given the rate up front. So, so an interested party or candidate would have to update their resume, send it to her, apply online for the job, which by the way, the link she posted, I went to, it was almost impossible to find that, that particular job. Um, 
it didn't go straight to the hospital. It, it went to a more, it wasn't indeed, but it went to, you know, a more robust job posting site. Um, so this person went on the, the influencer went on to say, this person will earn over a hundred thousand dollars per year as a CF. So they will be fine financially. I can assure you this is not a predatory position and actually find, okay, I, that's where I'll stop. Um, but I know the I know the I know the area that this hospital is in, and one of my students just got a job in the schools there as a CF for over ninety thousand dollars. You know, so that's what eight to three thirty with summers off and full benefits and and everything. So just over a hundred thousand dollars a year really isn't that big of a benefit. Even it's not even that much of a difference from a W two type position. And this is why pay transparency is so important and why governments are moving towards this because we can't have equity without pay transparency. And the only way to really understand if a 1099 PRN position, quote, PRN position like that is worth it is to know the rate. And did, did you, was the rate eventually published, publicized? No, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and keep in mind, and this is, I think somebody else, I'm not going through all the comments at the moment, but some other people commented, yeah, it's only over a hundred thousand a year. If this particular person works every single one of those days, Thursday through Sunday for the entire year, you know, never calls off, never gets sick, never has to go to a friend's wedding and, and has a full census, right? Like has the patience to to fill that, that hourly expectation. And we all know that life happens and it's probably going to be nearly impossible for that person to work every Thursday through Sunday. So it, yeah. And there are costs involved with that classification, which we'll get to, which would then significantly lower that annual amount. Here's, I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt. I mean to interrupt. Go ahead. I finished my thought. Go ahead. I am scrolling. Somebody else popped in here as this was um, a response I didn't see. Somebody said, I work at the sister hospital for this position. I make $50 per hour plus a $10 per hour differential. This is a PRN job. So it's $60 per hour. That extra $5 an hour does not cover my 403B, any type of pension or investment for retirement or my insurance. Yeah. So it, it's looking like it's around $60, 55 to maybe 65 at best per hour. Um, but we don't know because it very, very, very expensive area, probably one of the most expensive areas in the country. Yeah. So, okay. So I think one thing that might be helpful for people listening is like, again, you can't trust an employer to appropriate, appropriately classify you. ASHA has zero to do with this process. So ASHA cannot guide you. They are not the IRS. They have zero input on your employment status at all. So ultimately, it comes down to each one of you knowing how to navigate this process. 
And when you can't trust an employer to appropriately classify a position, that puts the onus on all of us to be informed. So when we're looking at job ads, I think there are some important clues to be looking for as far as trying to decide if it falls into a W-2 classification or 1099. And maybe we should also back up and describe what W-2 and 1099 is. So W-2 is you are an employee of that company or organization. You are entitled to benefits. If it's a company that hires 50 or over 50 people, I think it is, they are required to provide an option for health insurance, um, paid time off, like all kind of the typical things that you we've all come to expect uh, working for a company as an employee. A 1099 contract is where you are basically self-employed and you're contracting your services to that company or organization. And so you are then responsible for paying your taxes, like withholding your own taxes, figuring out that whole situation. You're responsible for your liability insurance. Um, You have a lot more freedom and flexibility as far as like, I can come in on Tuesday from three to five or whatever. Like you kind of get to set your schedule and you work as needed. And generally it's less than 32 hours a week. But again, there's no like hard and fast rule. But I think when you're looking for job or looking at job descriptions, generally, if you see a job that's advertised at 32 or more hours a week with a set schedule, limited flexibility for time off, and you can't really say no to coming into work because you have this set schedule, then that's that's going to lean towards a W-2 position. Whereas 1099 is like, you know, they're advertising it from like one to 30 hours per pay period. Like if, there, if there's a wide range of number of hours that you might be working, it's very unscheduled. You kind of get to say, yes, I can come in this day. No, I can't come in this day. That would be more of 1099. And I think what's happening is companies more and more are trying to put W-2 employees into a 1099 status because that company can save a lot of money on unemployment insurance, health insurance, paid time off, um, liability insurance, all of those costs that come with an, an employee that they are legally required to pay. And so we're seeing a lot more SLPs looking at these types of job offers that we're talking about right now and not knowing, and this is why people are calling it predatory, just not understanding that a job that is presented as 1099 should really be classified as W-2 and employers should know better, but they, the, all of the state laws and regulations are different in every state. And unless we, the SLPs are pushing back, they can usually kind of get away with it because it's a very gray area. I do want to preface here and say too, um, Megan and I are supportive of both positions. One is not better than the other. It's what's right for you. So that particular post, we both had really strong feelings about it, you know, one way or the other, but at the end of the day, it's what's right for the SLP. It's, us here right now to help educate you on the difference so you can make the the choice for what's good for you, for your family, for your situation, because there is no right answer. Just making sure you're choosing the right classification and, and not being, I guess, 
duped or tricked or or not getting the best deal. So when you enter into the negotiation, that's the time to be talking about this. I know Megan has had a heck of a time trying to transition from a W-2 to a 1099. Uh, so once you're in, it's a lot harder to make the switch. Yeah. And I'll just touch briefly on that. And part of like the learning process for me of putting this episode in particular together has made me realize in hindsight that I took a job, a PRN position classified as W-2 that should have been classified as 1099. So my take-home pay is significantly lower than it should be because again, I'm paying for all of the things that this company is not having to pay for, like liability insurance and um, my tax rate is higher and all that. So again, going back to this job ad that we're talking about that went viral, like my initial response was like, what's the big deal? Like maybe that could be a really good situation for somebody. But I guess like if I were applying for that job in the interview, I would go in and say, look, I understand that you're classifying this as a 1099 position. That means I'm responsible for my liability insurance. I have a higher tax bracket. I'm responsible for my health insurance. There's no any, there's no matching or program for my retirement account. Like given all of that, are you willing to raise the hourly rate by $10 an hour minimum? Like, and that's where you just have to be informed. And like, there's, there's no one saying that you can't accept that position for 1099 because maybe you're in a situation where you have a, you're, you're married and so you have other options for health insurance that are affordable and you want like the bigger take-home amount that you would get with the 1099. So maybe it could work for somebody. But again, like it just depends on all these little personal details and factors that play into it and the SLP's ability and skill in negotiating during the interview and really showing that you have a lot of knowledge around this and that you're not going to be taken advantage of. I have this pulled up in front of me and I don't, without looking at all of the comments, I don't even know that this came up. The issue was that this was an unbenefited position, right? With no pay time off. But nowhere in this posting does it say it's a 1099. So I would be assuming this is a W-2 position, which then even takes away this person's ability to write things off as a you know as an independent contractor. Um, so this really this particular job I would think should be classified as a 1099, and the way that it was presented to me, appears like it would be a W-2. So maybe we want to talk about some of the clues to look for. Uh, I know, Megan, you picked out some postings that are currently posted for SLPs in Chicago. Yeah, I pulled up a couple of medical, like hospital jobs. And one of them, like what you want to look for, because a lot of these job postings are posted by somebody who works in HR. They have like a ton of check boxes they have to do and they legally are required to provide a certain, like certain pieces of information. So um, if, so exempt means that you are salaried, correct? Am I, am I wrong on that? We got to Google this real quick. <laughs> we know what we're talking about. I've, you Google that. And I will say, I actually don't know. 
exempt employees are paid a salary and non-exempt employees would be more considered in the category of 1099. So that might be something that you see on a job ad. They might use that language. Um, the one that I'm looking at when it says full or part-time, it says active, regular, restricted, part-time, one to 39 hours per pay period. So again, like if I was applying to this job that I'm looking at, looking job ad that I'm looking at, I would go into the interview if I had the opportunity and I would say, I see that this is classified as active, regular, restricted, part-time. Can you explain to me what that means? And then they might explain something. And then I would further seek clarification of like, do you know what my um, IRS status would be? Would I be a 1099 employee or W-2? And then you can ask, what is the pay rate as a W-2 employee? And then you can also ask, is this, does this facility have any kind of policy around electing to work as a 1099 contractor? And they're either going to say yes, and they have a whole bunch of information about that, or they're going to say, no, we have no idea how that works. And again, like, it's not like all of these companies know all of the intricacies of everything. Like they're all just kind of doing things the way that they've been doing them. And until an SLP comes in and is like, hey, can we get creative about this? They're not going to change how they're doing it. Another thing that really makes this complicated is the fact that it's all regulated by states. So like I'm in the state of Montana. I called the Department of Labor and Industry, but I spent probably an hour on the phone being transferred to different departments. I had to leave a message. Somebody called me back a week later. Like it was this very long process of even just asking, is it legal for me in the state of Montana to work as a 1099 contractor in a medical setting? And ultimately the answer was yes. But again, that's something that you want to do your homework and check in with your Department of Labor and Industry or whatever your state calls it and make sure that you're legally allowed to be classified in that status. Because a lot of states, like this 1099 contract thing came up because of contractors and subcontractors. So like people building houses or building buildings, like they didn't want to have to pay for all these W-2 employment costs for these subcontractors. And so that's where the 1099 status comes in. And then other industries started using that status, including the medical field. So it's just, it gets complicated. But one thing you're going to look at is like that classification in the job ad. And it's not always going to be clear and it's something that you can kind of take note of and you can either try to ask before you apply or you can go ahead and apply and then ask during an interview if you get called in for an interview. Um, I want to talk about some pros and cons of the 1099 contract. And again, like, when you're on a W-2 contract, your hourly rate, which is how most people, most SLPs are paid on a W-2, is going to be lower than a 1099 contract rate. So at a hospital, a W-2 contract rate might be more like $40, $45 an hour, whereas a 1099 contract rate will be more like $60, $70 an hour. And the goal is like what should ultimately happen 
be happening is the take-home should be about the same for both groups. And so even though it looks like you make more money as a 1099 contractor, like we've been saying, your ta your tax rate is higher. You have a lot of other expenses that you're responsible for. And so ultimately, your take-home should be the same as a W-2. It's just that the employer is upfront taking care of those costs on your behalf if you're a W-2 employer. So if you find yourself in a position where you're taking a 1099 contract, it works out for you financially and logistically that that's a great fit for your life and your career right now. These are just some things to keep in mind that if you are a 1099 contractor, you are not going to qualify for any sort of student loan forgiveness um, because the public service loan forgiveness or PSLF program requires that you are employed by a public service. Even if you're working for a public service institution, um, you're not technically an employee, so you wouldn't qualify for loan forgiveness. Um, you need to have your own self-employment tax ID, and that's something you can talk to a CPA about if you want to just use your social security number as your self-employment tax ID. Some people get fancy and set up their own LLC with an EIN number, which is a federal tax ID number. Um but you don't have to do that. And that, again, that's just something you would probably want to pay a CPA to sit down with you and kind of figure out um, what you what is going to work best for you. I'm going to jump in and say you can have an EIN number without an LLC. I did a ton of PRNing as a young clinician. And my CPA actually recommended that I get an EIN number just to protect myself from so many places having my social security number. I, at that time, I have an LLC now, but at that time, I did not have one. So I used an EIN number for many years without the LLC, but also sometimes my employer would not accept the EIN and made me give my social security number. So even employers don't even always understand that, right? So you can get one without an LLC. Just know that sometimes you'll still have to give your social. Yeah. And I, I'll just repeat, like, get a CPA you can trust because CPAs know way more than we do. And like, we cannot advise anybody on how to file your taxes and CPAs will be able to better understand each individual situation and they can offer some really great advice. Um. On a W-2 contract, you may qualify for a 401k plan and retirement plan contributions, but you might have to work a certain number of hours. And Jeanette's talked about the vesting schedule concept. Um, and so it might like this is something where you have to decide if they are like if you're a W-2 employee and you're contributing to your retirement account and they're matching what you're contributing, is that more valuable to your long-term retirement plan than just having like a Roth IRA that you max out at $6,000 a year and you you fully utilize the Roth IRA rather than underutilizing a company's 401k plan um, because maybe you don't work enough hours or you know there could be a, a variety of situations you haven't worked for them long enough to be vested um, so you might end up making more money with your own independent retirement account, but that just takes, again, like talking to a financial 
advisor, financial planner are really digging in and spending time um, in like researching what's going to be best for you. But as a 1099 contractor, you are 100% responsible for figuring out your own retirement plan. Um, if you want to qualify for loans, so you want to maybe buy a house, it's going to be much harder for you to qualify as a 1099 contractor. So generally what happens is like you go to the bank and you're like, hey, I want to buy this house and it's going to cost a lot of money. And the bank says, great, we just need to know how much money you make. And with a W-2 status, you need to give them a handful of pay stubs from the last few months. Whereas when you're self-employed, they want to see your tax statements from the last two years and they're going to average your income over the last two years. So it's a lot harder to qualify for a loan because they're looking, they're being, there's a lot more scrutiny involved and they're looking further back in your financial history and averaging over a couple of years rather than just relying on a couple of pay stubs. Um, as a 1099 contractor, you don't qualify for unemployment. So if your contract is terminate, terminated, you're considered self-employed, so you cannot file for unemployment. And again, you are saving the company a lot of money by being a 1099 contractor because they are not having to pay the state unemployment insurance for you on your behalf. Uh, there is a different tax rate as a 1099 employee that ten, or 1099 contractor that tends to be higher. And this is something that's different for every state. And I'm going to put up uh, a graphic on our Instagram account that kind of breaks down and it'll give you an example of all these different factors based on like the tax rate in Montana. But that would just be something that, again, you want to investigate before you go into a job interview, like being able to tell them like, hey, if I'm a W-2 employee, then my tax rate is this. But if if we're doing a 1099 contract, my tax rate is going to be this much higher like you're really putting facts on the table and having a really strong stance on your negotiations so that you're able to get a higher hourly rate as a 1099 contractor. Um, you are in an at-will contract. And again, this depends on the state. So you want to make sure like what that looks like for each state because it's different. Um but in general, as a W-2 employee, you're going to have a few more protections where the state's going to want to see that the employer has documented multiple attempts to try to resolve issues, whereas you have fewer protections as a contractor. Um, and so if you're let go, the company has less liability to prove why they did that. And so you're more likely to just lose your job without warning. Uh, you are responsible for paying your own liability insurance as a 1099 contractor. I think I pay like $120 a year, something like that. Um, it's pretty affordable since people tend not to sue SLPs, but it is a cost that you have to cover. Um, and then you are responsible for withholding your tax payments. So and that, again, that could differ based on the employer. Some of them might withhold it. I know, Jeanette, you've had experience where they withhold it if it's above a certain amount, and then they don't withhold it if it's below a certain amount. But you, again, mm -hmm. that's where CPA comes in um, and is worth their weight in gold because they can help you navigate that and they can look at your 
pay stubs and make sure that you're withholding enough because at the end of the year, generally, like, again, you have to talk to a CPA, but they're probably going to recommend that you set aside about 30% of what you make that you'll owe in taxes, which is quite a big chunk, which again is why at the end of the day, the W-2 and 1099 take home is, should be about the same. It's just about the job flexibility and the hours and the setup um, that's different. Sorry, did you want to add anything? I was going to, but you just keep going. You're doing great. So those, I mean, those are all of the kind of pros and cons that I had for 1099 contracts. Um, so again, as you're looking at job ads and you're trying to figure this out, I think the best things you can do are be super informed on your state laws. Talk to a CPA, understand your tax rates, um, kind of get a handle on what you want your retirement account to look like. If you are somebody that doesn't know where to start with retirement accounts or like thinking about money or talking about money is really anxiety inducing, I would recommend the podcast Financial Feminist. She has a lot of really great episodes that break down retirement accounts and how to get started with a financial plan. Um, but when you're, when, let's say that you have applied for different jobs, you've secured different job interviews, um, Jeanette, what would be some questions that people are wanting to ask to employers during the interview session? So as we already said, you want to know upfront what this job is classified as, is it a 1099? Is it a W-2? If you don't like that answer, Start asking about negotiating for one or the other. So you may need to do your research up front. Megan said, know what your state laws are, know what you're able to do and what you want. And if the classification isn't what you want, that's the time to start asking questions. If it's classified as a W-2 position and is listed as so many hours per pay period. So Circling back to the example we started out with from social media, this is a 32-hour per week job. That's when you might say, are you, or if there's, I'm sorry, if there's a range, that's when you might ask, are you open to a 1099? If it's a fixed rate, are you open to a W-2? If it is a part-time or a PRN position, how many hours are guaranteed per pay period? Is that paid regardless of the number of hours you work? More than likely, that answer is no. And I'd like to jump in here as the, the resident professor on this podcast who works with a lot of new students. You need to be aware that if you are going to pay, if you're going to buy in to the CCC, if you are going to pay for that product, which P.S., you do not have to, but if you are going to, you have to be aware of what is considered full-time and part-time. So for a graduate in that nine-month experience to pay for the Certificate of Clinical Competency, you have to work 35 or more hours per week. This would mean that anything under that is only part-time, which would extend the length of your experience past the full-time 36 weeks. So this, this particular position that we talked about 
from social media was a 32 hour a week CF position. So it's also not mentioned anywhere in that posting that you would need to be mentored for more than a year to, to, to complete that experience, which is another way that this was kind of a predatory thing, you know, you, and you can't even average it out. So that, that nine month experience is 1,200 and 60 hours. So it's 35 hours per week times 36 weeks is 1,260 hours. But you also have to have a minimum of 36 weeks. So you can't, you know, load up 70 hours a week and be done early. So just be aware of that. Be be asking about those hours. If it, you can, I see this question a lot on social media. You can do a PRN position a 1099 position as a new graduate. There are a lot of things to be aware of. So another question with with that being said is if you prefer the 1099 position and that is what you're trying to negotiate for, you need to ask who's paying for the mentor. Because with a 1099 position, more than likely you will have to provide your own. I know that's the case with some travel therapy positions. Sometimes travelers have to find their own mentorship, which means you might also have to pay that mentor. So is the difference in the W-2 and the 1099 enough to cover the cost of your mentorship if you have to pay for that yourself? So that's another great question to ask to be looking into I always advise my students to make sure they're looking at that. Is it, is it, what are the hours per week? Is it guaranteed? And if it's not, are you prepared to be under mentorship for longer? With all of that, what about the census? If the census is low and those of us in healthcare know that that happens, it's a feast or famine situation, are you required to take PTO? If it's a 1099 position, you're not even going to have PTO to take. If the census is low, will you be forced to travel to make the pay that was agreed upon? Will you have to take you know, any kind of unpaid time off? And if you're forced to travel, is the time in between the buildings compensated? Are the full mileage and the minutes compensated both ways? If you're going to be 1099, make sure you're negotiating that into your contract. You're not driving for free between buildings for them. You need to be paid for that. Same with W-2, you really need to be paid for that. And also, if this is a new grad type of position, where is the supervisor located? What type of mentorship will you be provided? And then is there a raise at the at the end of this nine-month mentorship period? Uh, so ultimately, you are the SLP. You get to decide what classification is appropriate in collaboration with your employer. Make sure you know your state laws. Megan and I try doing some really awesome research for this episode and state laws aren't even clear. She mentioned that earlier. And, and I know in between our two states, there are some differences. There's a lot more leeway where I live in Ohio than where she's at in Montana. I have 1099 positions that would never fly in Montana. And sometimes I'm not even sure that they would fly in Ohio, but I can't find the answer. So just make sure you know your state. Do not call ASHA. ASHA doesn't get to decide this. ASHA has zero say in your contract. They cannot advise you on state-to-state -state issues. 
And ultimately, you don't even need ASHA to get your state license. Your state license is all you need to practice. They're selling you a certificate. They're selling you a product. So the state is the first place you need to go with questions, a CPA, you know, the, the, the board of speech pathology and or audiology in your state, that is where you should be going to ask questions. Truly, ASHA has nothing to do with any of this. Yeah, agreed. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode. Um, Jeanette and I are discussing if this is our final episode of Other SLPs Pockets. We've been dreaming and scheming up another podcast that we would like to do that dives into other issues in the field of SLP, particularly the certificate of clinical competency, state licensing, how to untangle ourselves from being beholden to ASHA, um, a lot of issues in our field that just need some more conversation around them. So if you are listening to this, we would love to hear from you on Instagram or via email, hello at otherslpspockets.com. Do you want to hear more of these types of episodes or are you ready like we are to shift and have other conversations about other issues in our field? Um, Write to us and let us know. Before we wrap up, I give a negotiation tip for every episode. I failed. Listen, I'm, I've am i got a million things. I failed to look back on my negotiation tips. So this, I don't know, I could have kicked off the series with this first one. But if I did, that means it's important to me. And so my tip today is don't take negotiation personally. It's truly just business. It's expected. You should negotiate. And you again, it's not about you. It's about the company making as much money as they can, really. So it's business. Look out for yourself because your employer or your potential employer is not, in in most jobs, not going to look out for you. So that's my tip of, of the episode. And if you are someone who finds it awkward to talk about money or you feel any kind of embarrassment or shame around asking money questions during interviews recruit some of your friends or family members and just say, I need to practice asking these questions with a straight face and just practice the questions that you're going to ask in the interview and give your body a chance to regulate and like get used to that being normal. Um, Try like, especially women, like we're really good at smiling when we ask these questions or laughing or like trying to make it a more lighthearted discussion. And I would just challenge everybody listening to just ask the question directly Um, know that you are doing yourself and the company a favor by taking this all very seriously and making sure that it's a situation that's going to work for both of you. And so, yeah, I think just practicing those questions could be really helpful if that's something that you need. And I, I do have one more thing to say, especially since this could be our last episode on this topic. We do have a website linked that we both really like. It's um, Speech Pathologist Salaries, SLP.careers. The whole link is on our Instagram. I do want to mention, this is probably one of the things that I have been most messaged about on Instagram. This is not our website. We do not run this website. We don't moderate it. There is an ad, apparently, if you are trying to access it from the your phone, some cell phones won't allow you to submit it because of that ad in the way. So you may need to access it from a computer, but there's nothing Megan and I can do to fix that problem. I'm we just guy like, that we've never met and he's yeah. ad money and he's enjoying his life. 
So yeah. We're all- so if you're the guy that we're we're making you some money, number one, we want to cut, and number two, there's an ad, so you might want to fix it. But I just wanted to mention that because I I think every week I get messages about it, and so if if you're a fan who's listened to the end, um, we we have nothing to do with that. But if you haven't gone, please go contribute to it because it's a great resource, and it will only help us grow stronger as a field as as we undertake negotiating. Love it. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everybody.